We're going to start off with a bit of a behind the scenes when Bill Gates used to work at Microsoft. When staff meet Gates, it's a big deal. This team are waiting for him to review their work. For years, he's had a reputation for getting stroppy. There would always be heated arguments between Bill and the programmers. He's very famous for having always said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. He's always been pretty confrontational, but that worked well, I was confrontational also. As long as you stood up to Bill, he respected that. That's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not doing this thing. No, 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 no. Somebody's confused. Somebody's just not thinking. I mean, there's no way. You guys never understood. You never understood the first thing about this. He's certainly passionate. Uh, yeah, so how do I interpret that? So, I mean, he shouts. Yeah, there are times, of course, there are times he shouts. I think that as he's grown older, that the ratio of shouting to non-shouting has tremendously decreased. Today, Gates listens intently and responds with just a nerve-inducing frown. You are listening to the Serial Entrepreneurs and Business Leaders podcast, where we study billionaires and simplify their nuggets of wisdom. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Serial Entrepreneurs and Business Leaders podcast, where we break down what it is that has made these billionaires so successful. Today's billionaire was born in 1955, has a net worth of 116.1 billion. He founded what would later become the biggest company into the entire world. Today's billionaire is Bill Gates. We're going to start off with a bit of an introduction to Bill Gates' life before we dig into the fake interview with Bill Gates himself. So stay tuned for a, a deep dive very briefly into the life of Bill Gates. Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft and Philanthropist, was born on October 28, 1955, an upper-middle-class family in Seattle, Washington. An avid reader, Gates excelled at Lakeside School. In the eighth grade, the Mother's Club at the school purchased a teletype terminal and a block of time on the school's computer. Gates would spend as much time as he could on the computer and wrote his first program at the age of 13, a tic-tac-toe program in basic computer language that allowed users to play against the computer. In 1973, he graduated from school with a score of 1,590 out of 1,600 on his SAT tests. During his time at school, Gates had befriended Paul Allen over their love of computers. They had built a computer program based on the Intel 8008 chip called Trafodata that monitored traffic patterns in Seattle. Although Gates had acquired a place at Harvard University to study law, he would eventually drop out in 1975 to pursue a business with Allen. Gates and Allen then established Microsoft on April 4th. 1975, with Gates as the CEO. The name was a blend of microcomputer and software. While Gates oversaw the business, he would also continue to write code himself and review it before it shipped. IBM approached Microsoft in July 1980 as they wanted an operating system for its upcoming personal computer. Gates said it could be done, although Microsoft didn't actually have such an operating system for IBM's new PCs. Gates approached a small software company and made an offer of $50,000 for an already made system called 86DOS, while keeping it confidential who it was for. He adapted it for the PC and delivered it to IBM as PC-DOS for the same price of $50,000. Keeping the source code, Gates required that manufacturers, including IBM, pay a licensing fee. 
Microsoft licensed the software to PC manufacturers as MS-DOS, making the company a major player in the industry with sales going from $7 million in 1980 to $16 million in 1981. At the same time, Apple, led by Steve Jobs, invited Microsoft to write software for their computers. Through these collaborations, Gates identified that Macintosh's work-in-progress graphical user interface was much more user-friendly than the text and keyboard-driven MS-DOS system Microsoft currently had. Gates would then soon announce his own graphical user interface called Windows for all PCs with MS-DOS. In 1984, Apple launched the Macintosh, and a year later, Gates and Microsoft launched Windows. In 1987, Bill Gates, at age 31, had become the world's youngest billionaire. Gates continued to improve Windows and persuaded computer manufacturers to preload it on every computer it sold, and by 1993, Windows was running on almost 85% of the world's computers. This would also cause investigations into Microsoft for unfair marketing practices as a monopoly. In 1995, Gates launched the revolutionary Windows 95. By 1998, Microsoft was the world's biggest company. Gates stepped down as CEO in 2000 to Steve Ballmer. Since then, Bill Gates has dedicated his life to philanthropy, funding disease prevention, combating poverty, and improving education around the world. Bill, so what is the key thing that enabled you to be successful? In my case, I'd say my best business decisions really have to do with picking people. Deciding to go into partnership with Paul Allen is, is probably at the top of the list. And then subsequently hiring a friend, Steve Ballmer. And having somebody who you totally trust, who's totally committed, who shares your vision, yet has a, a little bit different set of skills, and also acts as a check on you. You know, some of the ideas you come up with, you run by them because you know they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, have you thought about this and that? The benefit of sparking off of somebody who's got that kind of brilliance, it's not only made it fun, but it's really led to a lot of success. So picking, picking a partner is crucial. How was your work ethic when you started at Microsoft? If some friend had tried to call me, I wouldn't have had too much time for that. Now my Microsoft work was when I was very young. I started when I was 17 and that was my primary focus until I was 53. And for the early part of that, I was kind of maniac. I wasn't married, no kids, I didn't believe in weekends. Until I was about 30, I didn't believe in vacations at all. It was incredibly fulfilling to write the code and be hands-on, stay up all night. So for my 20s and 30s, I think the Microsoft thing was perfect. Wasn't it pretty much uh, a one-man army in the early days. So when Microsoft first got started, I wrote most of the code, and everybody else's code I read and kind of rewrote. Uh, and <laughs> that got us up to 10 people. So how did you raise finance? Well, Microsoft was very lucky in that we're not a capital-intensive business. So, you know, it was financed by money I'd made in high school. I did the, the school <laughs> scheduling, and there was all sorts of software things you could do and make money fairly easily in those days, because the number of people who knew how to do software things was, was very small. We did take uh, an investment. We sold 5% of the company at a valuation of 20 million, took in a million dollars from a venture firm, just because we wanted to have him, actually it was more the senior people, but it it ended up being him. Advise us about uh, various choices we had to make. You know, those early days, we were, because we knew that software was this magical thing, and it was enabled because the chip was magical. And weirdly, people didn't understand that, you know, Moore's Law essentially said that 
computing power would be infinite. And so the best way to think about it was to say, okay, software would be the limiting factor towards any sort of digitally assisted activity. We thought of ourselves as a software company. We ended up competing with companies Let's talk about hiring. I was always worried. We had lots of customers go bankrupt and I was hiring people who had children. You know, they were moving to the city. And so I'd always do this calculation of, okay, do I have enough money that if nobody pays me, can I pay the employees for over a year? I realized I needed somebody who could hire people and maybe even tell me not to sell things that weren't done yet. So I convinced Steve to drop out of business school. Then we, we realized we needed somebody who'd been in a large corporation. We made a mistake. We hired somebody from Tektronix who, when we interviewed him, we were so embarrassed that why would he want to come to our crummy little company? We forgot to interview him. Uh, but then after <laughs> six weeks when he hadn't plugged his computer in, we actually decided that he wasn't the right person. But there was a person who worked at Radio Shack, that, a guy named John Shirley, that I wanted to hire. And I couldn't even say it because I really respected John. He was a, a huge customer at that point. And so I had my the guy, the venture capitalist Dave Marquardt, is on the board, go say to John that I wanted to hire him. And John was like, well, of course, God, I'd love to come there. So I guess I underestimated our attractiveness at that point. But he came in. And he was the adult who, you know, had done financial planning. Like we made this uh, mouse peripheral and we had a warehouse full of them because we'd made too many. I mean, just such stupid uh, things. And John just completely got that stuff under control. He was president for nine years. And, and then he, he was an adult who knew how to hire adults. Uh, so we ended up with a nice mix of uh, young, naive, uh, over-optimistic people who still we controlled everything uh, and then the adults who could ask us to think twice uh, before we you know did three crazy things per day it's a really great blend of skills and we learned how to accept the fact that they weren't quite as intense as we were I mean they had like wives and kids and things so they would go they would leave at some point during the day what's your opinion on work-life balance for founders I think you, know, you can over-worship and mythologize the idea of working extremely hard. For my particular makeup, I mean, it really is true that I didn't believe in weekends, I didn't believe in vacations. I mean, you know, I knew everybody's license plate so I could tell you over the last month when their car had come and gone from the, the parking lot. <laughs> it, it, so I don't recommend it. A, I don't think most people would enjoy it. Uh, once I got into my 30s, I could hardly even imagine how I had done that because by then some natural behavior kicked in and I loved weekends and you know my girlfriend liked vacations and that turned out to be kind of a neat thing. Now I take lots of vacations. I mean, my 20 year old self is so disgusted with myself, you know. But yes, it is nice if during those first several years, if you have a team that's chosen to be pretty maniacal about the company and how far that goes, you, you know, you should have a mutual understanding so you're not one person expecting one thing, another person expecting another thing. And you'll have individuals who, who have, you know, health or relatives or things that are distracted. But yes, I have a fairly hardcore view that there should be a very large sacrifice made during those, those early years, particularly if you're trying to do some engineering things that you, you have to get the feasibility. And, you know, in the software world, it's very, particularly for platforms, these are winner-take-all markets. So, you know, the greatest mistake ever uh, is that whatever mismanagement I engaged in that caused Microsoft not to be 
what Android is. That is, Android is the standard phone platform, non-Apple phone form platform. That was a natural thing for Microsoft to win. And, you know, it's it really is winner take all. We, you know, if you're there with half as many apps or 90% as many apps, you're on your way to complete doom. There's room for exactly one non-Apple operating system. And that, you know, what's that worth? 400 billion uh, that would be, you know, transferred from company yeah. G to company M. Is AI the future of business? The paradigmatic question for anybody who's ever written a piece of software is, what is the software that's controlling a human? Its ability to write symphonies, play chess, engage in social activity, read. Computers, we pick the, that AI, we would define AI by certain uh, sensory perception thing, primarily speech understanding and vision, and that those would be the frontier. Also chess playing, but that turned out to be really solvable, that is to be better than humans by brute force techniques. So that kind of got taken off about 15 years ago. But you're always wondering, when can I create a computer that could take, say, a textbook, read it, take the AP exam and get a five? And, you know, that's completely unsolved. So the most interesting, you know, this guy Hilbert laid out 22 problems for mathematicians in 1900. If you think of the equivalent in software, problem number one that sort of subsumes most of the other problems is not solved. And so that's what you would work on. Uh, if your mind, you know, from age, say, 11, is thinking about software and what can it do, what can it not do, and then, you know, you think you're really good at writing code, and then you meet somebody who's better, and you think, okay, now I'm really good, then you meet somebody who's better. You know, by age 18, actually, you might be pretty good. So the rest of your life, you're going to think about the structure of the software that can do the equivalent of, of, of what a human can do. Definitely be drawn to that. Now, it turns out at this era, that's not the only interesting I mean, there's certain problems in biology, diseases of the poor are one that I'm obsessed with. I'm not doing the test tubes myself, but I get to uh, help pick and fund the people working on those things. And there's also things in energy that have to do with inventions that would avoid uh, climate change. So, you know, I would definitely do software because that's what my brain, you know, it's like Bobby Fischer playing chess. I mean, uh, your mind gets molded and shaped in a pretty permanent way to the obsessive problems of age 11 to 21. Is it safe to say that the secret to your success is an incessant desire to learn? I take college courses all the time. I love learning company courses. I loved being a student. There were smart people around. They fed you. They gave you these nice grades. It was unfortunate that I didn't get to stay there. But I don't think I missed any knowledge because whatever I needed to learn, I, would, I was still in a, a learning mode. We talked about the one-man army. How do you feel about delegation? You want to have impact. Usually delegation's important. So when Microsoft first got started, I wrote most of the code and everybody else's code I read and kind of rewrote. Uh, and <laughs> that got us up to 10 people. And then I had to say to myself, okay, we're gonna ship code that I didn't edit. And that was hard for me, but I, you know, I kind of got over that. Then I still said, okay, I'm gonna interview everyone, at least look at samples of their code. Well, that got us up to about 40 people. And that was at a point where I had sold way more software than we could write because everybody was so impressed. And I thought, well, I need to keep enough, collect enough money to, you know, keep hiring all these people. But the demand was so high that, you know, we were actually falling behind. That's when I hired Steve. And Steve figured out, A, how to control what promises I made to people, and B, how to hire lots of people, and good, really good people, and create organizations and teams. So I delegated to Steve that. And he was constantly saying to me, okay, we're gonna hire programmers that you've never met. And I'd say, no, we're not. And then he would show me numerically 
that the constraint wasn't going to work, then I said, okay, then I would know all the managers of the people. And so over time, and of course, you know, I could say the quality per person was falling monotonically, according to me. But, you know, large problems, if you want to, you know, write the most popular office productivity software, that one person absolutely can't do that. You can write pretty code. So everyone has to decide what scale of organization they want to work in. Eventually, you know, my role was very much as a leader and a reviewer of managers, but the top people, and I hired some super experienced people, I would make sure they were pursuing a common vision and they were well coordinated. But in terms of a lot of management stuff, they were way better than I was. Now I had to have the framework to know what mix of skills that we needed and you know when they were working well enough together. But a lot of my value added was picking, say to do graphics user interface or to do an integrated auth type thing or to go global and not use agents to have Microsoft be present all over the world. So yeah, picking what you're good at and how you find the other people to fill in those things, that's super important. And most founders don't aren't able to scale that up and kind of give up the hands-on things that they used to get a lot of pleasure and comfort from. Reading seems so important to you. Let's talk about that. I don't let myself start a book uh, that I'm not gonna finish. You know, when you're reading, you have to be careful that you really are concentrating, particularly if it's a non-fiction book. Are you taking the new knowledge and sort of attaching it to the knowledge you have? And for me, taking notes helps make sure that I'm really thinking hard about about what's in there. If I disagree with the book, sometimes it takes a long time to read the book because I'm writing so much in the margin. It's actually kind of frustrating. Oh, please say something I agree with so I can get through to the end of this book. You'd want to be sitting down for an hour at a time because otherwise just getting your mind around, okay, what was I reading? This is not the kind of thing you can do five minutes here, 10 minutes there. Uh, magazine articles fit, or short YouTube videos fit into those little uh, slots. Read so much. How do you remember it all? If you have a broad framework, then, then you have a place to put everything. If you want to learn science, reading the history of scientists and the story of scientists about when they were confused and what tools or insights allowed them to make the progress they make. So you have the timeline or you have the map or you have the branches of science and what's known, what's not. So incremental knowledge is so much easier to maintain in a rich way then, you know, the first time, you know, somebody, you know, is telling you about Rome. Why, why am I reading about Rome? I'm reading about Queen Victoria. At first, it is very daunting, but then as you get the kind of scope, then all these, these pieces fit in. So it's fun to say, okay, this is where this belongs, and oh, does this contradict something I knew before, and I better look that up, I better figure it out. You know, it really bothers you when you read things and there's some inconsistency. I just want to thank our sponsors. Head over to unlimitedcrypto.co to get free cryptocurrency when you create cryptocurrency accounts. Free cryptocurrency, why would you turn that down? Just go down to unlimitedcrypto.co. Our second sponsor is influentialme.com. That's influentialme.com. If you want to get some influencer marketing, influencer marketing is the future of marketing. It's high trust. People don't want to respond to ads that they see when they're just spamming up their Facebook feed. When it's from a real person, it's a completely different story. Go to influentialme.com and revolutionize your marketing. Get it modern. Make sure you're doing the best kind of marketing available to your business and find out more at influentialme.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and give us a five star on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it so much. Have a great one. Goodbye.